for Girard, um, you know, humans are fundamentally mimetic or imitative, right? And this has many aspects of importance to how we learn language, how we learn different things, because we are basically copycats, right? But it also means that things like violence have the potential to spread contagiously. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and Marlo. Today, we're joined by Jeff Schoenberger, a clinical associate professor in the expository writing program at New York University and a columnist at Compact. And Jeff is joining us today to discuss the recent tragedy that took place in Texas, where a gunman shot and killed 19 children and two teachers. The tragedy revived calls for gun control, but also highlighted a pervasive spiritual rot that seems to be behind these incidents, which Jeff has written about and will speak with us further about today. So thanks for joining us, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So Jeff, you had an interesting angle in your recent piece following the, the recent mass shooting about human sacrifice and how this regressive practice is somewhat replicated in not only the mass shooting, but also the ritual act that follows in American culture. Could you start by explaining this idea to our listeners who haven't read your piece? Sure. So first of all, I didn't, you know, sort of coin this way of reading it. I was partly commenting on some other other writers who had sort of invoked this notion of human sacrifice in recent weeks. Uh, one was Maureen Dowd in the New York Times. Uh, and then there was also a piece in the Baffler, the left-wing journal that sort of invoked this notion. And so... You know, I I was trying to both, you know, accept part of this framing wall. So I think shifting the way it's being used. So the standard way that these previous pieces have done it is to say something like, you know, there's this cult. I mean, these are, again, liberal commentators. So it's it fits into an argument for gun control. The idea is essentially the gun has become a kind of God or fetish object. And so these sacrifices are proof of our sort of irrational attachment to this um, cult, supposedly as a culture. So I, I think there's there's part of this argument that resonates with my own interest in the sort of historical phenomenon of human sacrifice, as well as various thinkers like René Girard and uh, Georges Bataille in particular, who and also Roberto Calasso, who, uh, who have all written compellingly on the subject. And Basically, the things that this phenomenon of mass shootings does have in common with human sacrifice is that it, you know, when we, I mean, interestingly, there was a, just as an example, there there was a recent discovery of a a large number of hundreds of skulls um, in in Mexico. um, And it was initially assumed to be, uh, uh, you know, one of these murders carried out by a drug cartel. But then it was proven that the, the skeletal remains are actually far older, right? And so they were the remains of some kind of sacrificial ritual. So whenever we find out about incidents like this, like through archaeological discoveries, you know, they tend to be shocking and seem, uh, you know, just irrational and impossible to account for, right, according to our own understanding of things. And so I think, you know, in, in the basic way that we, um, that we respond as spectators to these incidents, 
we we experience a certain kind of incomprehension, right? And that's I'd say universal, right? Regardless of where we are, I think all of us when when these kind of incidents occur, they seem fundamentally irrational and inexplicable, right? Because they are um, acts of you know mass violence, as often human sacrifice was that you know, don't seem to serve any purpose, right? In other words, the person, it's, it's, it's not somebody, um, because they're a criminal carrying out a killing, you know, as part of their, uh, you know, uh, criminal activities. It's not somebody who, um, you know, or, or it's not the state carrying out, you know, some kind of uh, killing as part of its monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, to use that concept. Instead, it's this, you know, violence that seems to serve no purpose, right? That seems to be um, and, and, and seems to be fundamentally inexplicable for that reason. It's not part of war. It's not part of any kind of criminal phenomenon. It's just pure violence for its own sake, right? And so that, I think, is the basic way that, um, that they're correct to see a kind of link to human sacrifice, right? Um, so the, the thing that I think they're, they're wrong about is that, um, you know, the, the gun does not really fully explain this phenomenon as a, as a specific cultural phenomenon, right? Because while it has occurred elsewhere in the world, it is, you know, far more frequent in the United States. And there are countries that are more violent than the United States that have as many guns, uh, more, I mean, you know, that's, that's hard to say, but certainly as many guns, let's say in in regular use um, that are, you know, very violent parts of the world and, you know, uh, you know, parts of the Middle East or, or, Latin America, you know, that have larger numbers of murders, let's say, but they don't really experience exactly this phenomenon, right? So this phenomenon seems to be, even if it's not completely specific to the U.S., it is the particular way that it happens is is largely an American phenomenon. And that, so that cannot be simply explained by the presence of guns, right? There, there are some other things that have, have happened here. And so what I, what I set out to do in the column, I think, was, was try to um, you know, give an account of this relationship to human sacrifice, specifically through the idea of sacrifice as something that is, and and this comes from the work of Georges Bataille, who's really the the philosopher who most um, kind of draw drew modern uh, thinking back to the question of human sacrifice, right? Which sort of during the Enlightenment had been, you know, regarded, you know, begun to be regarded as just kind of barbaric and meaningless, um, and then you know, was also interestingly engaged with in Christian theology before that, but also seen as superseded by, you know, Christ's passion, which is sort of presented as the, the um, you know, the end of sacrifice, right? And so, you know, what I, what I tried to do is, is connect um, this phenomenon to, you know, the, the fact that, um, by many accounts, there is some function that sacrifice fulfills, right? That um, in in cultures, and that it can take a, a great variety of different forms, not necessarily as bloody or horrifying as this one. That you know we have in some way lost any understanding of, right? And so this phenomenon seems to have, you know, erupted into our culture as a kind of return of this repressed element that has been present in many human cultures throughout history. And they used to be very central to how many of these cultures, including Christian culture, thought about the world. But that has become largely something we just see as irrational and, and barbaric. And 
that's not to say that it isn't irrational and barbaric, but I think there is a logic that, that is, is worth trying to understand. So I'm glad you mentioned Rene Girard because um, I was I read this piece like several years ago about um, by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker about kind of the copycat effect of these shootings, which maybe you've read as well. Um, specifically, he points to um, like group behavior and how it takes, especially after Columbine, that kind of set off a uh, this effect where people did they kind of had this hero worship of the two shooters and. It's interesting. I mean, I was I, I kind of linked what Gladwell was theorizing there and kind of my impression of his piece to uh, Rene Girard and kind of his concept of mimesis. So I'd be interested in hearing about, you know, what you think, you know, how maybe mimesis and contagion have a role or maybe we can analyze it through that Girardian lens when we look at like not only mass shootings, but maybe even covid so, like, do you have any thoughts on how we can apply that framework to, I mean, since we're on the topic of shootings, mass shootings, maybe that's more applicable here? Yes. So that Gladwell piece was, you know, similarly um, uh, made an impression on me and, you know, did an interesting, offered an interesting analysis, which while not directly indebted to Girard, was in many ways convergent with many of, many of his accounts of how you know, violence is contagious, right? So basically, for Girard, um, you know, humans are fundamentally mimetic or imitative, right? And this has many, you know, it has many um, aspects of importance to how we learn, you know, language, how we learn different things, because we are basically copycats, right? But it also means that things like violence have the potential to spread contagiously, right? And so, you know, we can see what this looks like in the context of like, um, and so the the theory that um, that Gladwell draws on, which I also discussed in a piece for Tablet Magazine called Human Sacrifice and the Digital Business Model, which is kind of thinking about these arguments in relation to online mobs and, um, you know, pylons and things like that, um, which, you know, um, is, is another way that I've kind of used these ideas. But I, I also linked this to the, the sociologist who Gladwell discusses, his name is Mark Granovetter, who has this notion of a, a threshold. And basically, he, he was analyzing what happens, you know, sociologically in riots. And the idea was essentially that, you know, the, most people have a relatively high threshold before they will engage in some kind of radically antisocial behavior, you know, whether it's throwing a brick through a window, I mean, in the context of setting riots or, you know, lighting a building on fire or whatever, or, or beating someone up, right? So the, the idea is the majority of people have a relatively high threshold um, that they have to kind of get over in order to engage in any of these kinds of normally sanctioned behaviors. And so the idea of the threshold theory is that in a context like a riot, because it assembles together a large number of people who have different levels of sort of resistance to engaging in this kind of activity. You know, the people who have the, the lowest threshold, right, who, who can most easily switch over into engaging in this kind of activity can then be, become the models of the people of a slightly higher threshold who, because they see other people doing it, will sort of mimetically replicate their behavior and so on and so forth until you get to the people who would be very unlikely to do it unless they had many examples of other people doing it prior to them, right? In other words, we could say the people who are most mimetic or imitative, which would be the majority of people, versus the people who are a little bit more, you know, willing to go out on a limb, let's say. And so 
Gladwell argues that, you know, something like this has happened in a more diffuse way with mass shootings because as they have, you know, they've become a self-perpetuating phenomenon because as they have become more frequent, that leads to them becoming even more frequent because it means that more and more people who might have some, you know, predisposition in that direction have more and more examples to follow, right? And so that um, allows them to overcome the high threshold separating them from, from these events, right? So in other words, another way to put this is as they become culturally pervasive, they become self-perpetuating, right? And so, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting here, which, I mean, and so, you know, going back to my argument about human sacrifice, which is obviously, again, a, an act, a, a kind of action or ritual that is largely looked at with horror, right, among sort of modern people. Um, you know, on the other hand, we have the fact that and, you know, I would argue that the, the shooters themselves in many cases seem to at least intuitively understand what they're doing sacrificially, right? And in many cases, they are sacri deliberately sacrificing themselves. In other words, they're engaging in this act with the understanding that they will be killed in the process, or in some cases committing suicide after they complete it. But, you know, regardless, another way that they are mimetic and that this, sac this kind of sacrificial activity is mimetic is that they often, and Gladwell discusses this at length, they will often idolize the previous shooters, right? So in other words, they will have, um, and this is one of the most well-documented phenomena, right? That the people who do this always intensively study the examples of the previous people who have done it, right? And so it, it really functions in this, um, in this mimetic way, right? So Gerard, I should add, and then I'll, um, you know, I, th I think I've covered this this point, but um, Gerard, you know, sees sacrifice as a kind of culmination of a mimetic process. So it's it's essentially something that, um, you know, both culminates the kind of escalation of violence, but he argues in a sort of ritualized form in a culture in which it is accepted. The reason that it is accepted is because it brings about some kind of cathartic closure to this process, right? So it, it allows for this violence to kind of reach a climax and then be contained at least te temporarily, right? But then of course the sacrifice has to be repeated periodically because um, you know, the, the, the sort of mimetic uh, conflict continues to build up, right? So it has to be um, repeated in order to periodically kind of again, bring this violence to a climax, which in, in a sense allows for a kind of cathartic resolution of it. So this for Girard is, is how sacrifice functioned in archaic cultures. Obviously today it's a little more complicated, but what's strange is that um, you know, th this, this pattern is similarly kind of ritualized, it's periodic. It seems to, you know, it comes in walls and then bursts. It's sort of, um, you know, there, there are these sort of build up, build ups towards it, and then it kind of explodes, and then there's a sort of brief period of 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 impact, and then gradually things gather towards the next event. So what's strange is that you know there's not any kind of uh, you know <laughs> deliberate coordination here, but nevertheless this pattern has somehow reproduced itself. Jeff, I'm curious, you know, in terms of the cultural influences that might be at play. I think, you know, conservatives have rightly pointed out some of the, the family-related issues that could perhaps make someone more disposed to this type of behavior, in particular, the individual's relationship with, with their father or lack of relationship or potentially an abusive relationship. You also see it in this recent case sort of a, 
a, a hatred of of women and um, some some incel type behavior. Perhaps the the shooter was involved in sort of some dark corners of the internet where they were talking frequently about violence against women. So I'm curious um, to what extent uh, you see culture, specifically the culture of, of the family and the breakdown of the family playing a, a wider role in some of these shootings. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think there has been some, um, you know, there has been some study that there, there's a, there's a, at least a pattern of a, of a, you know, sort of missing father or, you know, some kind of familial sort of disruption, right? But, you know, on the other hand, that's obviously very widespread. These events are both spectacular and, you know, in statistical terms, relatively rare, right? In in relation to, say, the numbers, the number of people who, um, you know, have have those types of backgrounds. So, you know, I think I think that that offers part of an explanation, but but not a sufficient one. But I would say that you know, again, kind of drawing on Girard, you know, part of his, uh, I mean, and this is a little bit abstract, but, you know, part of what he thinks leads to a kind of social destabilization is, you know, a a kind of uh, dismantling or, um, you know, scrambling of sort of hierarchies, right? So in other words, when, I mean, essentially that he argues that stability in social uh, settings tends to come from some degree of hierarchy that is relatively fixed, right? And so that would mean, you know, within the family having a certain sense of, uh, you know, a pecking order or basically a sort of paternal authority um, and, you know, a maternal authority of some sort as well. And 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 within the society at large, it just means some sense of having some kind of relatively fixed place within it, right? So his argument is that you know societies have organized themselves this way for a reason, right? Which is that it um, it limits conflict, right? Because when authority is is sort of vertically organized that way, it's relatively rare that conflict will proliferate on that kind of vertical axis, right? Whereas on a horizontal axis, where you have people who are essentially in the same position or see themselves as being in the same position as others. There's a much greater sense of or potential for instability, and so you know I think that's um, that's certainly a way that you know the, this kind of theory would again in a sort of abstract form um, suggest that there's uh, this kind of you know potential not not just for violence but for a kind of um, spiritual disorder or just you know generalized sense of dislocation right and alienation. That that comes out of this kind of um, this kind of breakdown, and you know beyond that, I think it's interesting again from a sort of mimetic point of view that these kids, you know, they, they are casting out. You know, they're not looking up vertically at some model, right? Whether it's a father or some community figure or, or whatever, they're looking out horizontally to you know, essentially people they can see as peers, right? And the people they sort of select as their models are these other, um, you know, these other shooters, right? Which is, I mean, it, it is quite a disturbing phenomenon, but it's not, um, it's not entirely out of keeping with the general way that there's been a, a kind of shift towards this hor- horizontal axis of identification, we might say. In other words, that, you know, um, when we when we um, kind of devalue this more kind of vertical axis of, of identification, right? 
um, where, you know, instead of looking up to, you know, some kind of elder or figure who projects some sort of authority, we look to the side. Um, you know, this is where, you know, a, a potential for um, these sort of things emerges again in, in a sort of abstract sense, if that if that makes sense. Another, I think, um, observation conservatives have made besides the observation that a lot of school shooters do come from, you know, broken households, disrupted families, maybe abusive, you know, they have abusive relationships is kind of the absence of religion and how perhaps, you know, the, the void that is there without God has kind of created a nihilism and almost an existential rage in a lot of um, these young men who, you know, do carry out these violent and heinous acts. Um, And you identify the spiritual hollowness in your piece um, that you say is at the core of American empire. So how do you, do you think that maybe that that, that's a more abstract question than um, simply identifying, you know, um, a family figure as being kind of the, the glue that holds together, you know, someone's upbringing that may make them perhaps less likely to carry out something like this. And absolutely by no means do people who do all people who come from broken households end up, you know, this is like you mentioned earlier, this is a spectacular and, um, you know, statistically it is not common for that to occur. Um, but school shootings do, you know, unfortunately there have been several over the past, or I'm sorry, mass shootings over the past few uh, weeks alone. So what, what do you think is the role of religion in here? Do you think that conservatives have kind of um, the right idea when the family and the lack of um, any type of, um, you know, spiritual spiritual glue kind of holding students, holding young men, especially and grounding them is absent? And maybe that's leading to some of these adverse uh, behaviors and, and violent behaviors for that matter. So... My argument, which, again, maybe uh, the more controversial part of the piece, is that mass shooters have created a kind of substitute religion. And I think the best evidence for this is that they often themselves appear to see it this way. Um, That they, you know, often, I, I mean, I mentioned before that you know, there's a great deal of evidence that they look kind of mimetically for models to these other previous shooters, but that they also kind of, you know, you can find there are like these shrines that have been created basically on the internet to these, um, to these previous shooters, whether it's the Columbine shooters or Elliot Roger or others. And so there is this kind of cult of martyrdom, we might say. Um, and, you know, usually what's discussed in relation to these actions or often in many cases what's discussed when it's not the idea that this is fundamentally about, you know, guns is that there's a, um, you know, there, there's a set of ideological commitments that the shooter will evince in some way and then that's kind of uh, adduced as the explanation, right? But, you know, the, w- the way I see it is, you know, if, if you abstract what shooters may have said or... or not said about what they're doing, you know, what, what seems to be most remarkable is the similarity of these events, regardless of what their kind of ideological outlook is. And I'd say that's because it's, it's kind of this um, self-referential cult, right? Where basically the, the fundamental commitment is to this kind of act, right? And, um, you know, whatever kind of ideology gets attached to that might be seen as more secondary, 
or, or at least that's the argument I'm making. And that, that would explain why you know, people of all different persuasions or no evident persuasion whatsoever, as in, for example, the case of um, the Las Vegas shooting, right, which is still the largest, but we have no idea what, what the motive was in any kind of ideological or political sense, um, is that, you know, that there's a, a willingness to die in order to commit this particular type of act, right? And so that, again, suggests a kind of... Um, uh, an almost sacred value being placed on this type of act, right? Which is a horrifying thought, obviously, but, um, you know, if we look to the history of sacrificial religion, this is not an unusual phenomenon, right? In fact, it, we can find archaeological evidence of it on every continent, right? So this is not rare in human history, in fact, right? That, that people will see, um, you know, this kind of, what seems to us gratuitous slaughter as a kind of sacred action. So, you know, I think that, that, again, the best evidence that this constitutes a kind of religion is simply that they themselves often seem to see it that way in the way that they sort of worship previous shooters and, and kind of see their acts as um, part of this kind of lineage, right? And, and as kind of examples of a kind of ritual that they have to, you know, in some cases explicitly kind of imitate things that previous shooters have done. Right? Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I think there's sort of in this, you know, if, if we wanted to get to the content of this, again, sort of ersatz religion, then, you know, the way, what I argue, which again, I, I suspect is maybe somewhat controversial is that um, what, you know, what they, what they bring to the fore and make us ask is, um, you know, what, what does it mean to possess uh, a sensibility in which you um, place so little value on life, right? In which you, you don't value life. Now, I think what's kind of interesting here is that, um, you know, if, if there's one thing that we sort of seem to agree on to some extent as a culture, although this comes up, I mean, this, you know, actually informs quite a few different culture war debates, it's that there's some intrinsic value to the preservation of life, right? And that this should override other values, right? And, and people of different persuasions at least appeal to this argument in different ways. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated point, but the, the, um, the part of the point I'm making here is if you look at human societies across history, you know, there are often things that, our value, there are often values that are placed above life itself, right? Where it is, it is regarded as not only acceptable, but noble and honorable to give one's own life or, or, you know, sacrifice life in honor of some higher value, right? Whereas this is often something that we're uncomfortable with. Um, an example of this would just be, you know, um, the, why do we have so much drone warfare today? Well, basically because, the idea that we will be sacrificing our own citizens in wars is no longer as sort of intuitively acceptable to us as it might have been at one point, right? Okay, so that's that's just an example of this kind of type of value placed on the preservation of life, right? Now, that's not to say that we're, I mean, of course we are profligate. I mean, I'm not saying that we're actually good at that necessarily, right? There are all sorts of ways that we're profligate about and disregard human life. So that's not, that's not the point. The point is that there's an ideological and sort of um, 
a kind of secular religious commitment to the idea that nothing overrides the value of life itself, regardless of how well we actually live up to that. So my simple explanation of this religion of the mass shooters is that it is basically just an inversion of that, right? That um, in the name of not necessarily any particular value, right? Life is being destroyed for no particular reason, right? And, and thereby this kind of value that's placed on life is being inverted, right? Or overturned, right? And so it's a, it's a kind of dark mirror image of our own, again, not, not necessarily accurate self-conception of our society as, as one of people who value the preservation of life. And so what they're, what they're doing is in a sense just turning that on its head and saying um, life is... And, and, you know, the other point here is that the logic of sacrifice historically is not that life is expendable, exactly. In fact, it's that life is valuable, and therefore expending it, like simply destroying it, is an incredibly powerful act, right? Because you're, um, you're taking something that is, you know, it's, it's equivalent to sort of, I don't know, taking a huge stack of money and lighting it on fire or something like that. You know, you're taking something that is valuable and simply destroying it. And, you know, according to many accounts, this is, or, or we could think of the Bible, right, where the story of Abraham and Isaac is a sort of, you know, early story of the, the rejection of human sacrifice and specifically child sacrifice. So the logic of that story, as I, as I understand it, and I think some others do, is that, you know, Isaac is to be sacrificed precisely because he is so precious, right? Because he is the only son, he's the son who's, you know, come to Abraham very late, um, and so precisely because his life is so valuable, there is no more, you know, religiously significant act, right, that, that transcends um, the sort of, you know, more utilitarian values of human life than to expend the very thing that is most valuable and render it on, up to a higher power, right? So, you know, so this is a, it's a logic that still is difficult for us to comprehend, but I would argue, and you know, other philosophers have argued that it is really important to understand for trying to make sense of why so many cultures engaged in this, right? And I mean, I mentioned just to finish up this point, I mentioned Georges Bataille, right, who's um, a very interesting kind of philosopher of religion, and this is at the center of his account of sacrifice, right? That, that the function of sacrifice is is what he calls unconditional expenditure. It's taking the thing that you value and simply consuming or destroying it right and and the the point of this is that you are this is the means of transcendence because you're overcoming the merely utilitarian right you're not you're not taking things and using them in a, in a way that provides direct and immediate functional or practical value to you instead you are creating transcendence by taking these things that you value and kind of rendering them up to something higher. It doesn't really matter necessarily what that is, according to this account. Right now, you know, I, I think this is where a sort of deeper debate about values comes in because I think, you know, what, what we don't tend to discuss or want to discuss is um, what are the things that we as a culture value above just life itself, right? What are the things that we're willing to and this came up during the pandemic, right? And that's that's kind of an interesting point here too. Um, you know, what are the things that we're willing to place above the mere 
protection or preservation of life? This is a question that I think most of us are pretty uncomfortable with asking, um, although perhaps I think secular people are more, most uncomfortable with asking it, maybe. Um, religious people may have a clearer way of, of responding to it, although not necessarily always. But, you know, the point I, I think about this mass shooting phenomenon that is, is so kind of um, is so disturbing about it is that it, it forces us to kind of um, recognize this other logic in a, in a quite horrifying way. Jeff, I'm curious, your piece in particular didn't go into a specific policy uh, relating to mass shootings, but I kind of have two lines of questioning for you. I'm curious how you think that, you know, the sort of the do, the do something mentality, whether it's in the form of gun control or red flag laws, how does that fit into this concept of mass shooting as, you know, ritual human sacrifice, perhaps as, you know, our response to wanting to be cleansed of, uh, you know, this, this incident, which, which we all find rightfully, you know, hateful, disgusting, sort of, there's a need for us culturally to purify ourselves. So one, how does, how do the calls to do something fit in this narrative? And then secondly, what do you make of, of some of these policy proposals and, and are you open to them? Do you think they would help in, in any meaningful way or not? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think in a sense, the tenor of my argument is, is is to say that I, I believe that it is possible, and I speak from no particular expertise. That I mean, and this is also has a point has to you know relates to kind of the scarcity and um, and or the the relative rarity of of these types of events, despite their significant cultural significance, right? So I think, and that's also another point about you know why I argue this is a religious phenomenon is that you know. It, in the scheme of like gun violence in the United States, it represents maybe something like 1% of fatalities, uh, according to one statistic I saw, right? But nevertheless, it has become the central way we comprehend this issue, okay? So, you know, my sense is that on one hand, that tells us that the centrality of this is fundamentally cultural and, and as I argue, religious rather than sort of practical, right? And that's why in some ways I think as a, as a sort of policy issue, it's, it's, it, I mean, it could be, or it can be misleading, right? Because it, it does not represent the typical or the, um, you know, the most common form of, of firearm fatality, right? And so, so what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, policies that just have to do with firearms are, you know, they, it's, it's possible that they will have some, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I would imagine that, you know, some reduction in the availability of firearms would, would make these kind of things less likely. I, I prop, that's probably true. And, but at the same time, I'm not sure that that's, um, you know, I, I, I think that this issue is so, um, again, it is, is so atypical in the scheme of, of gun violence that I, I'm, I'm not sure that's the best frame in which to see it, right? Um, and so, you know, I think, um, I, so it's like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily making a case for or against any particular policies in that area. Instead, I'm sort of arguing that there's a need to, to some extent, reframe the discussion around it in terms of, you know, what its significance is to our culture 
rather than you know how it's a, a sort of um, or to what extent it's a fixable problem in, in practical terms if that if that makes sense but I feel like that's sort of a dodge of the question <laughs> so you know in, in practical terms I guess I would say um, you know I, I think we've seen that you know there are, it's interesting there are countries that you know don't have these types of incidents very frequently but have had some very spectacular instances of them right um, and you know to generalize a little bit, a lot of those, in a lot of those cases, the, the motivation has been um, much more clearly political, like in the case of like Breivik in Norway or um, the, the Christchurch, New Zealand shooting. So I think, you know, what is specifically American about this is this, um, you know, particularly these kind of more nihilistic mass shootings that, that don't even seem to have any particular political content to them. And you know, to my mind, uh, I, I, I just don't really see, um, I, you know, I, I, do, I don't see an approach to this that, would, that could merely be um, policy-based. I think it, it has to be understood as a cultural phenomenon. And that means that it has to be grasped, you know, not as something that is, I mean, again, I, I think there are probably ways the incidents could be reduced, but that, you know, it, it's symptomatic of, of a deeper crisis that, you know, will persist in some form until the sort of underlying causes are reckoned with more fully. So that's probably very pessimistic. You've hinted at this, I think, in your previous responses. And unfortunately, we only have time for one last question. So this is, I think, a kind of a good way to you know, finish the pod, this podcast recording, because I think it's at the, it's been identified in multiple, um, I think multiple experts have identified this as an issue, but, um, and obviously the, this, the most recent shooting, and um, there was one several days before that in Buffalo, it's largely, you know, amplified by the media. And I believe in the, the Gladwell piece that we previously spoke about, um, it's also, you know, highlighted in there as kind of a component of this entire conversation about how this contagion can occur. Um, so in all of these crises, whether it's, you know, in the case of mass shootings, obviously copycat effect, um, that's more obvious, but also with COVID, which you, you know, you write about a lot, um, you identified how the pandemic led to certain experts being bolstered as celebrities who couldn't be held accountable, right? Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how the media can be a variable in maybe you know, in, in both of these, I mean, they're both crises in their own sense um, and in different ways, but where do you see the media playing a role there? Is the copycat effect and the media's role in it, do you think that that's a fair assessment that it is leading to these this contagion? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think historically, yes. Uh, there's a, you know, if, if anybody's seen the Oliver Stone movie from the nineties, natural born killers, you know, which is kind of an interesting, I mean, I mentioned it briefly in my, my essay on this, but, um, you know, one of the characters in it played by Robert Downey Jr. is kind of this, you know, true crime pundit kind of journalist character. And yeah, basically he's represented as kind of glamorizing and, you know, creating this kind of mystique around these figures. And I think historically there is a truth to that. My sense is I'm not an expert, um, but, you know, my sense is that there has been some attempt to tone down on this in the coverage, um, particularly on the way that, you know, 
that the, the, the individuals committing these acts were for a long time kind of singled out and given this aura of, you know, terror and, and sort of, um, you know, given a kind of allure, I guess. Right. And, and that's what you see Oliver Stone sort of parodying already, even before like the Columbine incident, when he made the film that, you know, there, there's like this, this particular kind of media representation that I think contributes to this kind of cult that forms around these figures and that you have these sort of experts or, you know, these, these sort of specialists in this who may have, you know, kind of fed off and fed this um, phenomenon. I do think that maybe there's been a shift though. And again, I, I, I would like to study this more deeply. Um, I, I think there's been an attempt to, you know, publish fewer pictures of the perpetrators um, just kind of create, you know, kind of individualize them less, create less of a kind of um, strong picture of who they are in an, in an attempt to kind of cut back on this tendency to glamorize the, um, that to glamorize them. But, you know, I think there's a, there's a catch, which is that, you know, where, where the, the mainstream media sort of tries to pull back from that, you know, in some cases, social media users will kind of themselves jump in and kind of fill in the gaps in a way that was less possible a couple decades ago. And so, you know, I, I, I wonder in general and, you know, and then, and then the other problem is we still have this sort of, um, you know, long shadow cast by Columbine and some of the other sort of most notorious incidents. Um, so, you know, I think the media, my sense is that there has been some attempt to improve on this problem. Um, and yeah, there's no, I mean, I, I think it, to me, it's very clear that historically the way that they, the way that the mainstream media covered these incidents, no doubt contributed to their recurrence. And there is no real accountability for that or, or sense of how to, you know, measure blame for that. And, you know, there, again, there may have, I think there has been some moderation more recently in that area, although it's also been accompanied by this, much greater kind of ideological slanting where, you know, basically the cases that are jumped on are ones that serve some kind of convenient narrative that certain figures in the media want to pursue. Um, and so, you know, in, in a way what you have is less like, these are just these kind of strange, irrational, you know, outsiders who are committing these heinous acts and who can then kind of be weirdly and kind of perversely glamorized and more you have, this is like an idea, even if they're not particularly clearly an ideological actor, there's a desire to make them into one and treat them as one. So I, I think, you know, that's shifted a little bit and, you know, there, there's probably, you know, there, there's probably been some improvement in some areas, but also maybe a worsening in other areas, plus the rise of social media, which is making it possible for, again, these kind of, uh, these kind of cults of like this perverse celebration around these, figures to kind of spring up on, you know, on social media sites and, you know, various kind of dark corners of the internet. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jeff. And for listeners, any piece that Jeff mentioned, including the compact piece that we've been talking about throughout the episode, that will be included in the show notes. But if people are interested in seeing more of your work um, or following you, where can they find you, Jeff? Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter at daily underscore barbarian. And I'm also, um, I maintain a blog and sort of semi-infrequent podcast called Outsider Theory at outsidertheory.com. 
and that's also on Twitter at Outsider Theory. And yeah, generally I'm writing for Compact, sometimes for Unheard, and the Washington Examiner and a couple of other outlets. So you can find me there. Great. Thanks so much again for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. 